0: Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard.
1: Would you like to lead us into the cold, sterile, beautifully furnished environments of the HV
0: crypt. You know, I think, I think I really would. And I think the first thing I want to say is that the listeners during the course of today's episodes, the first thing or today's episode rather is that the first thing you're going to notice is paralysis of the limbs. Uh, The second thing you're going to notice is subscribing to the horror Vanguard Patreon. (laughs) Uh, And the third thing you're going to notice is that you'll get bonus episodes uh, every month and early access to every single episode we release and occasionally little, little little uh baubles along the way uh, and and now now you're all under my either my psychic spell or random happenstance or maybe I'm a demon or a ghost uh you we know. uh sorry I wasn't listening I was too busy menacingly eating spaghetti
1: <laughs> I'm sorry that's that's the bet that's the that's the best uh
0: patreon plug we've ever done uh and it was immediate it was immediate right off the I didn't even hide that somewhere in the episode. You, you may, you may be feeling,
1: dear listener, that today's episode the the vibes are a little different. The vibes are the vibes are maybe off, um, and I think it's going to become very clear as to as to why that is. But we are here to talk about twenty seventeen's uh, Colin Farrell uh, <laughs> film. I like. I don't know how to describe this but like you know you know like the meme of like dudes rock this is mm-hmm. like the antithesis of dudes rock cinema like the, the 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 vibes are off the dudes are not rocking uh stuff is stuff is very weird we are here to talk about 2017's the killing of a sacred deer um and and as i said dear listener you may you may realize that things are not as you might expect from our show as I invite you to draw close to your podcast dispensing machine and listen carefully as your dear friend Ash explains what today's film is all about.
0: Uh, today today's film was all about uh, wasting the on-screen talent of some of Ireland's best male actors. That's what today's about. Whoa, we're starting early. Okay, Pracy,
1: time. <laughs> Take that, incredibly successful Oscar-winning director.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, but he hasn't won the Horror Vanguard Crypt Award yet, so he's nothing here. One critic described this film as some type of Old Testament allegory. But what does that even mean? Is this, no pun intended, sacred? Is it unrelatable? Is this meant to be some type of metaphorical text, not meant to be read front to back? but to be instead sampled, section by section, in order to discover meaning or uncover hidden aspects of our own lives. To make a film that would capture some of the spirit of the Bible is a bold move. Even so, when this action is not literal, but essential. I'm no great bibliolater, but I am a renowned connoisseur of lengthy and strange cinema. An engagement with extremes demands an equally extreme posture. Logistics never flinches. Michael Snow's films never flinch. And even Neil Breen doesn't flinch. Their strength of purpose makes them immune to failure in all the ways that truly mean something. When I'm watching their movies, I don't care about meager notions of quality. I'm enraptured, I'm struggling, I'm maddened. I sense some element of the sacred in the total dedication to purpose that moves me beyond what I could articulate in my passing grasp on oratory skills. What I see when I am seeing Killing of a Sacred Deer is this incomplete work, a half-sculpted, not-yet-where-it-could-be picture. The labor alone makes it worth in- makes it a worthy endeavor, but I find my gaze drifting to a perceptual gap between what is and what could have been. Yes, I need to be totally upfront, that gap is an internal one. Even if it is one shared by you, dear listener, it is nevertheless a relationship between ourselves and this artwork, inspired by intrinsic components always but still requiring our participation to discover its own incompleteness. And isn't that always where we all are, discovering our own incompleteness? Not as a series of bitter disappointments, but as a roadmap leading beyond our Kantian boundaries. I'm not even sure where I'm going with this anymore. I just hope that on some better day when we pass by each other in a lonesome diner we greet each other with a warm smile rather than icy derision. Help us recover the points where we left off as we discuss killing of a sacred deer. Oof. Ooh, killing of a shots fired, shots fired. You know, I I kind of already know.
1: I kind of I can kind of sense th- something that this is going to be One of those episodes where we find lots of common ground, but
0: maybe don't agree. I I have Uh, a sneaking uh, suspicion that that'll be the case. But where would you like to begin? Uh, Scrolling back up in our massive notes document. Well, I think think you had some interesting points about Brecht that I think could, one, ground the conversation, and, and two give give me things to agree with.
1: <laughs> okay, so on a on a on a formal level, there's something very deliberate about this film. Mm-hmm. And uh like if I can describe my kind of emotional or physiological response to the affect and kind of formal qualities of this, it's like nausea. There's something quite <laughs> na there's something quite nauseating about it. Um, Farrell famously said, "Doing this film left him very depressed," and I, I'm not surprised. Uh, I too am but, not surprised. <laughs> but like we we have never done the thing where we go, "Oh, it's bad because we don't like it." Mm-hmm. Um, and so the kind of the the opening point I want to think about is this film as an exercise. In not, in not kind of weirdness, but in kind of like Brechtian alienation. So it it, it is not cinematic naturalism uh, where it's like mimetic and you're supposed to kind of feel like these are real people. And at the same time, it's not kind of cinematic maximalism. There is no kind of like... Uh, and the great example here is Nicolas Cage, oh, yeah. right? There's no Nicolas... There is no Nicolas Cage-style histrionics or melodrama. It is... And and at the same time, the film is not kind of low budget enough or incompetent enough to constantly call attention to its own fictionality. So it adopts a very deliberately, uh, and it, Alienation is not not necessarily a strong enough translation of the German word. It is an estranging film. It is a film that
0: is, that it, on a formal level, is trying to push you away mm-hmm. That's that's very interesting. And and I can definitely appreciate that reading of of Killing of a Sacred Deer, right? It is it is very the affect, right, the directorial style here is incredibly flat. Almost almost unapproachably flat. But I found that in my in my viewing of this, I wasn't so much it, it wasn't it wasn't the type of situation where a film was trying to force me away from the text uh it, it was more that the film was failing to hook me to begin with like the, the 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 site of struggle was absent and i think that's interesting in the context of alienation because i think like I, i've been having a lot of conversations with friends lately about the nature or existence of community and i think one of the grim realizations that i keep returning to is that alienation has largely won on like an ideological level, you know, community doesn't exist for the most part. And this movie as an exploration of that. I I think is incredibly effective, but that might be a lot of theoretical heavy lifting to save a, to save a kind of stilted film.
1: Yeah. And, and maybe I, you know what? Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. (laughs) And I think, but I think that's, I think that's okay. Um, I agree. I, I, I feel like I feel like let's maybe we should kind of lay our cards on the table and so I know you talk, you talked to me before we started recording and I know this this film did not work for you no really at all. Uh, and I, I honestly, I feel very conflicted about this film because I think it's incredibly interesting for lots lots of very big theoretical reasons. But
0: I don't know if I like it. (laughs) And I, I usually a film like that, like that, that is the kind of thing that I go wild for a film that I like artistically didn't enjoy. But that discursively was just was just rich, just kept on giving, even though the film itself was was half broken down by the end. But with this one, like. I don't know, and and this, this was my first viewing of a film by this director. I haven't seen the favorite or the lobster yet. Two films which I hear are very good, and perhaps I would like those so much better. Um, but with this one, it just so It just didn't just didn't hit, just didn't fire. There was just never, never. I I kept waiting for the movie to start. I do, I do think there really is something to
1: this question of like Brechtian alienation mm-hmm. uh, of like. You're presented with the mundane to make you consider the mundane in your own existence, right? I think that's I think that's very clearly what the film is doing because everything about oh, it yeah. is too deliberate. Like the camera is always remove, the color and lighting is always extremely cold. Mm-hmm. the The actors who uh, who honestly, I think are in 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 moments approach something that is like remarkable. The actors are too are too good to for it to go. Oh, they're it's just a really bad line read it's it's deliberately kind of like everything is everything is so compressed and and pushed away and repressed and this is why i said like my feeling of watching it is like nausea because Mm -hmm. and and maybe this is what makes the film for me work for me which is this feeling of like uh everything is everything is going to it's like this kind of almost like the sickening vertigo because the space <laughs> be- be- between the screen and the viewer which normally cinema is seeking to collapse that space mm-hmm. right oh, yeah. or, or 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 to play around with that space to bring you into the world i think this one is deliberately opening a kind of chasm between you and it and it's it is it is like a almost like a it's like cinematic vertigo. There are so many shots where the camera suddenly kind of like I think my favorite one is uh there's this like long tracking shot where um Nicole Kidman and his son mm-hmm. are walking down the escalator and like the kid's legs just kind of collapse out from under him and you watch yeah. and the camera kind of sweeps back upwards into like a vertigo inducing shot. Um and it's like, I, I don't know if I've seen a film like this in such a long time that is deliberately opening this kind of like
0: void between me as a viewer and it as an as a text. That See, that's really interesting because that's something that I, I also picked up on while watching this film. Like, like, it is a very distant, very cold viewing experience. And it, in a way, it, in, in just, just please, listeners, bear with me for a second while I do this. It reminds me of Skinnamarink. <laughs> because, so, so I loved Skinnamarink to death with the exception of one thing. There was one thing in Skinnamarink that, that took it down a peg for me, uh, pretty significantly. And like, that's when Skinnamarink goes from being this, the, this kind of like amnesiac experimental weirdness that's attempting to explore that sensation of being home alone as a child and, and it's genuinely frightening and it's upsetting and weird and spiraling. And then it becomes a, a haunting. And then it becomes just a normal ghost story. And then the ghost starts doing normal ghost stuff. And, and all of a sudden it becomes so immediately pinned down. You know, like, oh, it's a, it's a ghost. It's a poltergeist doing some advanced poltergeist technology stuff. Okay. Now I know what it is. Now it's contained. Yeah. Now now it's much more simplified. When the when the ghost starts talking to you, or you, the viewer, or perhaps the 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 boy in the film, like it, it loses some of its magic, it loses some of its charm, and I think I had the you know, almost an inverted experience of that while watching Killing of a Sacred Deer because um, uh, so Colin Colin uh, Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, and um, uh, Barry Barry Keegan, like three phenomenal actors, lots of talent here. And like there's so this one scene where Martin is is talking with Colin Farrell's character and it's it's uh, right before the, the his, his kind of psychic attack starts. And and he he has to tell Colin Farrell's character like the three symptoms and what he has to do to make it stop. And instead of and instead of doing the kind of flat affect uh, detached read that we've gotten for every other line in this movie. uh. uh Martin's character Martin averts his eyes so he can't he can't look him in the eye and he just really quickly rattles off the three symptoms of his like psychic assault and what what uh, he needs to do to stop it and in that moment there's so much emotion and it's so well acted from both characters and you could tell like he can't look him in the eye because he's like a replacement father figure he he needs to do this horrible thing but he can't actually own the action of killing And like, like who is the sacred deer in question now? Like the pieces start to move around and it retains a little bit of that stilted quality and that detachment, but it packs so much emotion. And I was just kind of hoping that other parts of the movie could have had that as well. I think, I think you make a really good point about
1: like, there's one other moment that I think comes to mind, which is where, uh, and it's, Honestly, I think the person he's most underappreciated in discussions of this film is Nicole Kidman, mm-hmm. who is just utterly, just extraordinary yep. in this. And there's a there's a moment where she's talking with Colin Farrell and he he goes into this monologue about really wanting mashed potatoes. <laughs> and it's it's like it's not an explosion, right? It's but she's it's this kind of like cold, lacerating response that he's this ridiculous man who just kind of says stuff yeah and it's like it's this the film again doing this kind of very brechtian thing of calling attention to its to its own devices and and it has this sort of like deep dislocation within the viewer um and honestly yeah like i say basically i think this episode is me trying to work out live whether i like this film (laughs) but i do think i do think there's lots in
0: this film which is so worth kind of trying to figure out and this this I think like to, to get kind of meta for a second here like I think this is really important right because while watching this like this was I think about as close as I've gotten while watching a movie because there's been a few movies that I've suggested that you've been like ah, I don't I don't know if we could really get an episode out of that and there have been a few episodes or movies that you've suggested that I've been like ah, you know, maybe we could do that one later or something you know like you know we've we've had a, we've had a few movies that were like ah, yeah I don't know it doesn't really work um, and this is, I think, the closest I've gotten to that where I'm like, no, I want to stick with this one. Like for as, as much as I did not find a lot in the initial viewing experience, I had the sneaking suspicion that the conversation with you would be really rewarding. And that through that, I would find things that uh, I don't want to say enjoy or redeem or be so like emotive and reductive in my approach to this artwork. But find find things in it that allow me to see like myself and the world in which I find myself in a new light.
1: Yeah, I don't know if "enjoy" is the right is the right word to, use. but I totally get what you mean. I totally understand what you mean because there were there are moments of this in places. This is a very boring film, and and again, everything is too well done for it not to be deliberate. It's deliberately boring. Mm. I uh, like the opening. The opening twenty or thirty minutes is basically an invitation to the viewer to go and do something else. <laughs> like, um, and you asked this really good question in the notes, which is like, not whether the directorial choices are successful, because really that's a kind of separate question, but what the choices
0: mean. Yes, and you, you and I are really notorious for not caring about whether or not art is like in quotes good. And, and instead, like much more caring about how successful or not successful this art is uh, sparking conversations. And I, I think like, th- this is really interesting because now, like, I, I think on a formal level, I, I think I, I would say that a lot of this movie is not successful, like approaching this as film and as craft and I know this I'm lodging a dissenting opinion right now like I know how this movie stands in the records it is a little divisive but it's critically a very successful film and like but I, I I think it stumbles it stumbles a lot but that's that stumbling only matters very little right that's such a minor aspect at the end of the day when we look at the like, like, just look at the Marvel movies. Like the the latest Ant Man release is is this barely passable CGI slop that reminds me of like a shot on Sony handy film, and it's going to make billions of dollars and and spark tons of horrible discourse. The, like quality is irrelevant. We're 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 in a point in cinema where like. You know, like, you know, there's all the eras of Hollywood, you know, Golden Age Hollywood and all that stuff. And now we're at the age where quality literally doesn't mean anything because the most expensive movies... Yeah, it, d- it movies- doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. The, the most expensive movies being released today are some are, have some of the poorest acting, directing, editing choices. And again, like, half of that's not on the actual artists themselves, but on how uh, companies like Disney uh, treat their workers. Yeah. Sorry, that's a sidebar. <laughs> I have been I've been
1: rereading Paul Schrader's book, uh the writer of Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. So before he went into writing for films, he was a uh, honestly a really good film theorist. Mm-hmm. Uh and there's a if you haven't read it, it's a great book called Tr- On Transcendental Style in Cinema. Uh it's written when when he was like in his 20s and it's this incredible study of uh uh Dreyer, Ozu and Brisson, like mm-hmm. three in- amazing directors. And he comes up this idea of transcendental style um so Schrader was raised extremely Calvinist uh like very strict Christian religion wasn't allowed to watch films uh, and uh he connected he connects these directors with a kind of style of religious art uh, and the important point that Schrader makes is that transcendental style is not found in the content but is found in the formal qualities, in the how of the film, rather than the what of the Mm -hmm. film. And this is a film that comes very close to what Schrader calls transcendental style, um, but doesn't get there in some interesting ways. And I thought it was super interesting in your pricey, you were talking about the Old Testament, because the biggest connection is not, is not the Bible the biggest mm-hmm. connection? Is uh, Greek
0: theater, and this this is where I think things start to get really interesting, because this is a very Greek theater movie, and you're absolutely right when you say it gets so close to that transcendental style. And I think if there's if there's one phrase that kind of summarizes my relative distaste for this film is it's just that it gets so close. It keeps getting so close to so many things, and then it just. And even even, to be honest, that makes
1: that makes complete sense to me because I totally understand why you would have such a strong feeling about the film. Because like, if something fails completely, you can kind of go, you can sort of forgive its incompetence. And if something achieves it, you can be like, great. But if something (laughs) gets close, there's such a kind of on on the subjective level
0: as a viewer, there's such frustration. And even even like, there's something to be said for films that the point is getting close the point is getting close to something but never quite crossing the line and i don't i don't think this is even that i think it's it's getting close to getting close but let's talk about greek theater
1: so i i actually think the greek theater element has a lot to do with the performance and affect right mm. because the film is constantly kind of announcing itself to you the gr- the film plays its own greek chorus yeah and it's interesting you said that martin is like directing some kind of psychic attack and but i i i i didn't come away thinking that at all i i don't think that's the case mm-hmm. at all not really uh and I, because i think it's it, it, it so the big reference the the is um the euripides play mm-hmm. uh, it's one of the the one of the is it the last euripides play i think so uh yeah the last of the the remaining ones uh, iphigenia in aulis um By Euripides, and it is about uh, uh, Clytemnestra's response to Agamemnon Mm -hmm. sacrificing their daughter uh, to set off on the Trojan War, and right at the last second, right. So the the entire play is about Agamemnon wrestling with this idea of sacrificing the daughter to the gods. Right at last, there is instead the killing of the sacred deer. There, rather than killing the child, Mm -hmm. Um, and and. What do you what do you think about a film that is deliberately is is yeah? What do you think about this? <laughs> how do we how how do we make sense of this?
0: So I think I have to take us on another filmic detour to kind of make my point, point. Um, and that's uh, by way of the trauma film *Tromeo and Juliet* uh, because essentially this is this is almost a a remake or a remix, if you will, or a heavy inspiration. Um, of, of a classic piece of, of theater, a classic text. And, and when you when you remake those texts, there, there, there's always there's always some important questions that need to be asked, right? Like, do we update the time period? Do we update the language? How do we deal with our references? How do we change things to to create new meaning from old artworks? And yeah, everything is remix culture and everything adapts what what came before us. But some things are much more direct than others, which is this case. And I think for this film, this is where it's at its most successful because it, it takes those core elements, right? It takes those core elements from that work and then does a lot of different things with them, which I, I find to be really interesting. It kind of changes a lot of motivations and it's a lot more ambiguous about who the who the titular sacred deer is? Uh, what were what were your thoughts? I actually think it's a very it's a very literal adaptation. So like, <laughs>
1: um, the play, I I I am not a I am not a classicist. So like, people can correct me if I'm wrong about this. But from what I remember, the play ends with like a messenger coming on to say, uh, "Ephigenia has been replaced by a deer on the sacrificial altar,"
0: mm-hmm.
1: but. As like I say, I, as far as I'm aware, it's widely believed that that is not Euripides' original end to the to the play. That's that's seen as an addition. So, the play uh, ends with Iphigenia like dying, and the uh, di- and the entire kind of like lots of the course of the of the the play is about Iphigenia like coming to terms with being sacrificed for the glory of her father and to appease the gods. And there are moments where the film kind of touches on that in uh just in flashes in sort of like really really kind of like crystal clear flashes where she's talking to her father um, and it's done as a voiceover which I think are incredibly powerful and actually work really well. But I think it's in its it, it's in its faithfulness to that original source text. Mm-hmm. That its formal, its formal weirdness makes the most sense. That I will absolutely agree with. So maybe we shouldn't consider this a horror movie. Maybe we should just consider this like a Greek tragedy. But then,
0: what's the difference? I was going to say, I was, yeah, that was my follow-up joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what do you what do you think about the question of fate in this movie? We were talking briefly about whether or not Martin has psychic powers, whether or not Martin is an X-Man, and and questions of fate, I think, come up in the formal discussion of this film.
1: Well, maybe this is the kind of problem that some people had with the film, which is, like, it is depressing because there's nothing... Like, you know, if you're being chased by, you know, the slasher killer who died 30 years ago on this very night, there's usually something you can do, Mm -hmm. right? There's, And one of you will survive, but the the kind of structural strange th- the structurally strange thing about this plot is that you're told exactly what the problem is about halfway through you're told there's nothing that you can do about it and it's going to unfold exactly as you've been told and then it does and like may- maybe that's the problem that like horror horror i think struggles against the idea of inescapability mm-hmm. cuz like we're, dr- we're drawn to it there's this idea that like you were always foolish to hope, but at the same time, there's another tra- kind of tradition of horror which goes, actually, no, you can survive and you can kind of get through something. So this idea of like, you're fated to go to a particular end, I think is
0: deeply uncomfortable. And w- what do you think? So this, I think, is is really interesting. Um, and, and I think the the question of does Martin have superpowers is an interesting formal discussion we can have. Um, Because I think for me, the answer is kind of like very, very clearly. Yes. He has some kind of power or what that power is, is ambiguous and almost meaningless. You know, whether, whether he's able to do this from some sort of psychic will, or perhaps he's some kind of demon or God, or maybe it's just like he has some biological weapon he's using on the family. Right. It, It kind of doesn't matter because I think we're looking for like, uh, horror cinema is, is very tropic, right? Like, you, you know, like what's, the, what's the new standard zombie joke What's it's like, Oh, what kind of zombies are these? Are these George Romero zombies? Are these running zombies? Are these magic zombies? You know, like, like each one has its clearly designated taxa from which it cannot stray. <clears throat> but I do think that there is a, a tropic horror monster that fits for what Martin is. And that's Greek fate the The unbreakable binding of the gods that no matter what you do, you are kind of fucked, you kind of have no way out and yeah, and you and you you are always already fucked, yes
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> to put this in like the language of theory, and I'm like it no, does Martin have power? No, but what he has is knowledge, yeah that's that's the distinction that I would draw right. Is he? Is, it, is he? Is there a kind of uh, a relationship of causation? Yeah, I don't know. And the film is not particularly interested in explaining in going into that. But what the film is interested in is like, again, this is this is like straight out of like Greek antiquity. Yep. The idea that like knowledge arrives and is a kind of warning, but by the deliverance of that knowledge, you're already
0: doomed. Exactly. Like it, it just it just literally doesn't matter if Martin has powers or not. Martin could have uh, psychic powers capable of, because everyone around him acts stilted and weird. And one of the readings of that is that Martin is controlling everyone around him. Yeah. You know, whether, whether that's literal psychic puppetry or he's manipulating with these same threats of death, you know, that, that he can cause to other people. It's, it's a very big question. And then we get into questions of how, how did his father allegedly healthy father die? You know, we'll, we'll get to that in the discourse, but like, it, it it again. It doesn't matter because Martin too is a victim of this fate. He was fated to use his powers this way. If he even has powers, you know, like like that's the problem with fate in in kind of Greek tragedy. It's that the heroes, the villains, the bystanders, bystanders they were all stuck in this. Not not just one of them. All of them.
1: Yeah, there's there's this idea of like uh, hamartia. This idea that like you are you are like cosmically screwed. Mm-hmm. Not because not because. Something happens to you, but because within you there is this sort of like ontological flaw, you know, the 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 barred subject of all humanity that is going to necessarily
0: just destroy you. Mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely, and like to back to your comments on alienation, like there there's a woeful incompleteness to what we are, and, and that that incompleteness would be there under the best social circumstances. And it's just so much more worse and incomplete right now. And that makes fate all the more cruel. I mean, underscored by the fact that, like, these people are rich. These people are materially
1: comfortable. They have, like, he's a a, uh, noted uh, cardiothoracic surgeon. She's an ophthalmologist. She is making serious... They're making... They are pulling in bank. Their house is amazing. They have every... They have everything you could possibly need in a material sense in this contemporary era of, like, capitalism, right? Mm. But, like, there is... But this is maybe the... I don't know. Maybe this is what some people will find dissatisfying. Maybe this is what some people will find kind of depressing. It's like none of it. None of it... Quite literally, none of it matters. None of it matters. None of it means anything. Like the the grim scene where he's, like, trying to force-feed his kid donuts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you're like... None of it, li- the the matter is insignificant. The very stuff that you can acquire with wealth has no substance because of this, like mm-hmm. this, the the what Philip Roth would call like the human stain.
0: Right, there's mm-hmm. nothing you can do about it. Um, absolutely, absolutely. This is this is very like, uh yeah, like so. There's something about this film that's very like Eugene Thacker or Ligotti, right? Like there's a kind of. Interesting bleakness to this that's not as because like Thacker and Lagotti are aggressively bleak, like they're, they're they're proper goths, right? Like they they want everything soaked in darkness in a very aestheticized way. But I don't think that this film clearly clearly has separate goals. And one of the things kind of about that that I find to be so interesting is that like so we get to the torture scene with Martin, and Martin's being just tortured. And it just doesn't matter. Like it literally doesn't matter. Like if, if there's any family in the world that could get away with murder, which we see they do in the end, it's this family, and it doesn't even matter that they're torturing the guy that's responsible for their problems. No,
1: it doesn't. It. it I I think should we talk about the length issue?
0: Yeah, let's talk about time and length.
1: So, yeah, I think we should talk about. Firstly, let's talk about time. I think this. So. There are two senses of time. Uh, Again, if we go back to antiquity, to go back to Greek philosophy, there's Chronos and Kairos. Mm. (coughs) Chronological time, which is the normal flow of day-to-day events, and Kairotic time, which is the time at which, uh, the appropriate time at which action occurs. Right Mm. the the moment of in uh, the moment of intervention, where where the nor the normal is kind of suspended, and this is a film that exists in kairotic time right so like a way of thinking about it is what uh in a sort of more psychological and subjective way is what they call the time dilation effect which is like if you've ever been in a very serious car accident you'll know time kind of stops or like elongates for those moments uh and this is something that people report all the time right so i i i would say that this another reason the film feels so weird is it doesn't happen in in chronos it doesn't happen in chronological time it's a moment at which kind of like
0: fate happens instead that's 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 really interesting because i was thinking about this of course in terms of logistics right and like again my brain my brain was forever mutated by the longest movie ever made so here i am today um (laughs) but like so like logistics is almost pure chronos right like it yeah. is just the process of time in real time with, with a few cuts along the way in this film, I experienced in a similar, a similar way. Like this was just kind of the movement of time. You, so you got the, the a common criticism of this film. And one that I share is that there are kind of two halves of this two hour movie. You get the first half, which is incredibly slow, very meandering and also deeply personal and deeply alienating and deeply weird. And then you get the second half, which is a bad version of funny games. <laughs> and, and, the, and the kind of rug gets pulled out from under you, but not in a way that you'd appreciate after the fact. And I think for me, that was that was kind of a uh, like, like, like kind of speaking to my earlier criticisms, like imagine sticking with that. Imagine funny games, but it's slow Just like molasses, just dripping, and it's alienating, and it's awful, and it's weird, and it never picks up. Like that, that would have been there's a strength of character to that kind of filmmaking that I think gets lost somewhere along the way, and the the kind of editing and runtime and pacing of the Sacred Deer.
1: I think actually a lot of this has to do with its uh, story structure. So like we classically you have a th- you have your three act structure where your action reaches reaches a peak and then you have an act of like conflict resolution and wrap up uh this this one reaches its peak right in the middle like if you were to look at the graph the kind of uh your classic three act structure would you know it go up you'd have a peak and then it would like go down a little bit right at the end cuz that's your wrap up this one this one starts like flat spikes massively in the middle and then you have to kind of deal with that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean I mean that is true that is true. So uh, uh how do you feel about exiting this formal discussion and moving into a discursive one?
1: Yeah, absolutely, let's do it. So th- we can't even put we can't even put the Patreon plug here because you've already done a brilliant one. <laughs> uh,
0: see, we went for we went for a different act structure in today's episode with the Patreon plug right at the start. <laughs> but uh, okay, so let's talk about guilt and culpability because I think these are these are two of the most salient themes of Killing of a Sacred Deer.
1: Uh, yes, and honestly, I think the I think the opening shots do a lot to establish this. Like it literally has the surgeon like firing the bloody gloves off of his hand and putting them in the bin and walking away. Mm-hmm. Like the opening shot of the film is all about how surgeons have no blood on their hands. Yeah. Um, and the rest of the film is about absolutely tearing that idea to shreds.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is this is where I think the film gets, gets its most interesting ideas is when we start trying to figure out who is guilty of what through the course of the killing of a sacred deer? Yeah. What do you think? So I think, I mean, like, I think this is an, an interesting question of labor. Right. And, and the, the kind of analogous thing I was thinking of was policing. Right. Because in, in society, as we have structured it right now, police are kind of exempt from the consequences of the work that they do. Mm-hmm. Like they are allowed to do things that anyone else would be punished by police for doing. Certain jobs are necessarily have to have certain exemptions. If everyone who died under a doctor's hand was was treated as a murder, the the medical profession would evaporate overnight. Yeah, <clears throat> but this I think gets more complicated when we find out that the surgeon in question uh, was drinking before the surgery.
1: Uh, yes, because it's it's made a very big deal of that he doesn't drink anymore.
0: Apparently, yeah, allegedly, allegedly, apparently, in Minecraft, he doesn't drink anymore but he does before before the surgery and i think that this adds a new this adds layers of complexity to to discourses of guilt and culpability because now he's negligent in the course of his work and unlike police a negligent doctor can actually face repercussions for their actions
1: and it's the film is so kind of like darkly scathing about this because you know Colin Farrell's character the surgeon goes Oh, a surgeon never kills anybody. It's the it's the anesthesiologist's mm-hmm. fault. Yep. The it's the anaesthetist who kills people. The surgeon doesn't do anything. And then as soon as you hear from the anesthesiologist, he's like, Yeah, it's the surgeon's fault if somebody dies. It's never our fault. And it's like so so who did it then?
0: Yeah, who right? who failed? But I think I think the alcoholism points towards a larger problem because like that's that's a society level problem you know like a lot of medical problems are not individual issues for an individual body but they're society-wide problems they're they're literally caused by how we've structured the world in which we find ourselves and and addiction issues are one of those right like addiction isn't an individual fault that needs individualized care it's a society-wide problem that stretches to the very top and the very bottom of how we've structured this world and and the same is true for failures within the medical system, right? Overworked medical staff will fail more than less overworked medical staff. Medical staff who aren't getting the care that they need will fail more. And then they'll be working on patients that are not getting the care they need by society at large. So, like, again, this points back outward to systemic problems.
1: But this is true. This is true. This is true. But then you you create another sort of problem, which is that of – um which is that of responsibility because at a certain point, at a certain point, like intuitively most people go, something goes wrong. Ultimately someone is responsible, but the, and this is the, the line that the, the anesthesiologist and the, and the surgeon are taking is like, is kind of that they go, well, it's a systemic thing. You know, sometimes, sometimes people just die. Uh, And, and I think the film kind of makes that a really troubling thing to accept. Because you go well, if sometimes sometimes people just die, so, and you go well, yeah, but that's a sword that can then gets turned around on the surgeon. Mm-hmm. Where, where you go? Well, why is this happening? Well, sometimes it just happens. That's that's, fa- you know, in a in a way, isn't this idea of like a lack of responsibility? Isn't that just like a recreation of this idea of fate? Oh, abs- absolutely. Because because I actually I actually really agree with you about this notion of like systemic causes. But this is the problem with something like Latour's uh, actor-network theory, which is mm-hmm. like, if you if you disperse causation to to so many different points to so many systems, where does responsibility begin?
0: And and, I, I, oh, and, if,
1: and if you bypass responsibility, if you go well, maybe there isn't responsibility,
0: then you suddenly have a really big ethical problem. You absolutely do, and I think that this is one of the areas where this movie the the ambiguity of this film becomes one of its weaknesses instead of one of its strengths, a, a widely cast because there, there will always be individual responsibility, right? Like we are to an extent responsible for the things that happen to us, even when that's incredibly uncomfortable to confront, you know, it, it is, it is true in cases where you're using, you're using a dangerous tool that you didn't maintain well and it kills you or, or harms you severely. And, and in other much more difficult to pick apart situations but I, I do think that kind of one of the missing, missing things here is like the, the ideology behind what these characters are saying and why they're saying it. The anesthetist and, and the cardiac surgeon, you know, each displacing the responsibility from the other. Well, that's like serving a very clear ideological goal. It's like protecting class interests, right? Like these, these people are wealthy, you know, like, like they're technically working class, but there are many ambiguities given the status of the lives that we see that they have. And the whole beginning of the movie is them buying expensive watches, and I think that this that that question of who's responsible but like the 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 damning answer is that we are but we are responsible as a collective, which is much more complicated and much more stark than individual responsibility ever gets to be
1: yeah absolutely, absolutely I mean this is the thing that Martin says right, and I think it's such an interesting line if we except the logic of, like, either either it's societal or it's individual. Uh, you know, this idea of, like, structures as a kind of fate. He says, it uh, says it's the closest I can think of to justice. It's really the... What's going to happen to you? It's the closest I can think of to justice. And, like, whenever you're presented with a binary choice, right, between the individual guilty one who can be, like, the, the Girardian sacrifice that you put all the sins of the structures onto, <laughs> or you you vanish away responsibility entirely. You're being, you're,
0: you're completely correct. You're being presented an ideological choice. Oh, abs- absolutely. It's like that. What is that philosophical experiment where there's like, Oh, there's one person in the world and they have to live in total misery. And then the rest of us get to live in total happiness. And it's like, that's the most ideologically driven potential hypothetical ever. Like, like it's the ideology underneath hypothetical questions that, that makes them interesting. And that this movie is, in a way, posing that kind of a similar, like, philosophical thought experiment.
1: And you get to see that really clearly when you get into discussions of the family with this film, right? Mm-hmm. And the way the, these characters think of their children as a kind of property. Like, there's the there's that kind of, like, really queasy moment where Nicole Kidman's character just says, no, you should kill one of them. You should kill one of the kids. Uh, it's fine because we can just have another one.
0: Yeah, coming right. in with a utilitarian perspective.
1: Yeah, the sort of like, <laughs> yeah, the util, <laughs> the the number the number of utils yep. has declined. It's fine. We can just make more. We, of we this. can increase
0: the utils again. As 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 an adult, it, she 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 has more utility. She has a greater concentration of utils. Therefore, <laughs> it's just so funny. I, yeah. I was laughing at that moment because that's what I was thinking. I mean
1: it's it's such a like there's so many kind of really dark bleak yeah. jokes in this which is like and that's one of them right this idea that like actually all of those kind of rational this idea of like rationality being a kind of shield against fate family relationships being a kind of shield against fate because her da- the daughter just goes yeah you brought me into the world you can mm-hmm. kill me and it's like it like there's a kind of like shocking honesty to it where you go you're not supposed to say that <laughs> <laughs> right you know you're not we're not supposed to admit that like uh we're enormously vulnerable like and and you know it's a kind of unspoken horror of being being human is our ontological vulnerability to those that that literally
0: brought us into the world are the ones who can kind of like take us out and I think it gets really interesting right so we, we were just joking about the the wife of the family the mother being being this real crass utilitarian and just just doing this this logical mathematics about who gets to die, yeah which has its like proto fascistic qualities, but I think that like Colin Farrell's character just mirrors her behavior because how does how does he choose to kill someone? he He blindfolds himself, he spins around and then he shoots a gun until one of them dies. And like, yeah, that's this is the thing. This is the thing about this, which is like this film thinks that Colin Farrell's character is an utter coward. This film
1: yeah. hates Colin Farrell's character. Yeah, well, the
0: thing, the thing that I found about that 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 to be really interesting is if the the mother is kind of echoing and reflecting this kind of like proto fascistic social mathematics about which lives have more value inside of them. Colin Farrell's character is doing some kind of fascistic mysticism because he's that's not that's not an, that's not an actual randomized you know like a randomized controlled way of of killing one of these three people in a way that has minimal culpability right that's not actually shuffling them and then one of them arbitrarily dies like you you're telling yeah. me that that a grown man who just rotates a few times can't like still remember which one of his family members was sitting on the right and I, th- I think this is the thing right which is like
1: so much of this film is Martin deliberately trying to get Colin Farrell's character to take yes. responsibility Uh to, 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 to assume the responsibility that fate has put upon you. And so much of this film is him trying to kind of run away from it. And even right at the end, can he, can he do it properly? Can he do it? Mm. No. Like he literally, he literally has to cover his yeah. eyes and he can't look, at, he can't look at them uh and you know tries to put on this kind of pretense of no it's still random there is no control there is and it's like no this is in a way it would be
0: more honest to have chosen oh it would have been it would have been extremely honest because that that is yeah, no pun intended but that's making a choice he 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 makes the choice he chooses his son to die he picked that because he knows where he's sitting there there's there's no there's no mystery to what's going on here He's just giving himself some kind of plausible deniability that he can hold internally. Everyone in that room knows the, how the choice was made. And that's his wife. His wife was right. His wife made the choice. And then he just had to trick himself into agreeing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, um, I guess, maybe we can kind of pose this as like, what is this tr- film trying to say about this kind of
0: self-important, self important, self deceiving kind of masculinity this i think this film has such a complicated discourse on masculinity and fatherhood because you've got martin trying to get the surgeon to replace his father who died by by trying to steal him away from his family or ingratiate himself into the surgeon's family both both of which fail and then he has to go into this his murder his funny games uh, uh tactics but i i think like for for me, like one one of the most, I think like philosophically and interesting discussions of this film is just the the reoccurring symbolism of the watch, and and the watch contrasted with the heart, and I think this 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 ties into masculinity so well, right? Because you you are there are all these iconic moments in cinema where where men are gifting men with timepieces, and the idea of oh the watch your father hands down to you, the, the this kind of like masculinity that's like mediated through like a a. Lit, an accessory, a, a piece of jewelry that's kind of arbitrarily selected, like like that, I find to be interesting, really interesting in in context of this film because it's kind of like it's it's pulling out the threads in the societal stitching of masculinity and kind of like revealing the 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 cowardice and arbitrary decision making underneath. And I think
1: th- that's a good lead in to talk about medicine more generally. This is a meta; it's a kind of medical mystery. Some of this film, right? Uh, and there are certain there are certain kind of motifs that this film keeps picking up on and keeps returning to, um, and these are hands, eyes, and hearts. Uh, what do you what do you think about this? What do you think about this kind of
0: constant restaging of these three kind of points on the anatomy? So the hand, Let's start with hands, right? Let's just go down the list. The, the hands, of course, at the beginning, we, we you know, like hands are the the literal vehicle of agency in this film. it, it is by hands things are decided, and there are so many good close ups of hands—the taking off of the surgical gloves, the force feeding of the donut—when when we're ultimately trying to shoot one of the family members. <laughs> but I think I think during all these things, there's there's an amazing impotency on display. There's like so much cowardice. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that for me, like the the force feeding of the donut scene, I I think is so in uh, Stephen Murphy is trying to force feed his son a donut. It's pointless. He knows what happened to his son already. He knows why he can't move. He knows why he's doing these things. You know, it's not like it's not like some medical conundrum to him. He knows that it's like it's like fate and it's like this curse. But nevertheless, Mm -hmm. he has to he has to try and deny himself. He has to try to lie to himself one time. And it's it's the same hands, it's the same hands who keep making these choices, but the choices are all these ideologically driven things to hide himself from himself. What are your thoughts?
1: Yes, no, absolutely. I think hands as the object of agency are super important. Um, it's I think it's very important that his wife is an ophthalmologist, right? Uh, which is you know if really it's staging this, it's staging this kind of uh, dualism between looking and holding right uh it's it's you know the hands is is active looking is kind of passive right it's quite in a sense it's kind of quite deridian there's this sort of like metaphysics of presence happening Mm -hmm. in it right which is like to to be present is to do is to do something with your hands um what about the the importance of hearts and heart
0: surgery so this this is this is because this i think goes back to the conversation of fate Right? Because Martin keeps talking about how his father was healthy and he swam every day and, and he shouldn't have died. You know, but, but fate, fate is most most well known for its infinite potential for cruelty. You know, like exercising every day does not. And, and we talked about this in our episode um, with labor lifts, right with Dave when we were discussing bloody muscle bodybuilder in hell, that exercising is good for your health, It's great for fitness. But if you're working out to escape death, you're only racing to it faster because you're burning away those hours of your life as you head to the grave inexorably. And then to to con- to contrast that with the the timepiece again, I found it to be so interesting, right? Because this is this this is kind of like this turn in naturalistic thinking, right? Where where we go from oh, it's the will of God and it's this divine fate that leads us to God as the blind watchmaker. Who set the mechanics of nature in motion, and then and then never again looked upon creation and just backed away? And and the heart is always such a good metaphor for this thing. And the heart, of course, it appears in literature as a great metaphor for emotion and feeling and intensity. The thing that is absent from most of this movie is the thing that breaks in the beginning. <laughs> I don't know. That was just some rambling. But what are, what are your thoughts? I thought that was a particular fun, particularly fun symbol throughout the film
1: no i agree I agree it's just i it's the kind of seat of emotion right and it's the thing which is completely absent this idea of like the 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 dangerous almost the physical embodiment of like a a libidinal and emotional economy just gets it's literally cut out mm-hmm. of the film you open with with heart surgery and that's yep. it right mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's all you get that's all you get um and it's and again, it's a good way of sort of literally embodying an anhedonic mm-hmm, affect. Mm-hmm. This, like, the, he's he's heartless. He's heartless because he's he's unable to admit his own culpability. His own, like, I I honestly do think that the opening shot is is the opening sequence of the heart surgery is so important to actually understanding what the entire film is trying oh, yeah. to do. And it and it's about pointing out that the like. If you try and keep your hands clean, try and keep yourself removed from the contingencies, try and kind of remove yourself from your responsibility to others,
0: there is this kind of like great void that you open up within yourself. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the only way to keep your heart is to hold on to that responsibility. You know, he he, he loses his heart not by killing a man, but by negating his own potential for that killing. Right. He's not a murderer. It wasn't done in cold blood, but he is responsible for the death of another human being. Yeah. And and by by denying himself that potential, he also denies himself the ability to ever go beyond that moment. He has to stay sterile and locked away and just as heartless as a dead man.
1: You know, that cold smile right at the end, which is like
0: the best you Mm. can get. (laughs) So we're, we're, we're about an hour now. And I think a good a good wrap up question for this is: How are you feeling about killing of a sacred deer now?
1: Again, I I, I honestly I, I I do think it's a super interesting film. I think it's I think it's, but I I don't know if I'll ever watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's I think it's unsettling. I think there's there are, there are, there are flashes of it, which I think will sit with me for a very long time. Um. But yeah, I,
0: I don't know if I'm ever going to go through it again. Why? What about you? So I think it was a foregone conclusion that I probably wouldn't watch this movie another time. Uh, and I think I'm still there. I, I don't think I'm going back to this one. I don't think it's, it's going to become a, a sleeper hit for me. But I do appreciate the film a lot more now. And, and I have new ways of engaging with what this film is attempting to accomplish that I think make my having had watched it worth it. And and that's 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 pretty all right. I'll take that. I'll accept that. That's that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't think of anything better to describe than That what we try and do. Oh, absolutely.
1: Just like try and try and sort of just puzzle out collectively together, me, you, and everyone listening. You know what exactly we're supposed to make of of all of those images on screen. I would be super interested to hear from people who listen to this and who've seen it. But you know i think opinion tends to divide quite strongly so there's probably going to be people who really love it and i can i kind of get why and there's probably going to be people who really Mm. dislike it and i kind of get why (laughs) So, so yeah uh let us know let us know like um you know tell us on on social media if you are an hv patron please do let us know your thoughts on the discord um anything else anything else no, I, bring think up? That,
0: I think that about covers it well thank you thank you for tuning in to this uh, killing of a sacred deer review everyone and uh, I don't know I hope all all future heart surgeries for you and your loved ones go well and you don't have to use your psychic power to torment the family of a troubled surgeon one day in the future <laughs> good night <laughs> wrap it we're done <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse Until next week, stay spooky!